0: Good evening, everybody. Um, uh, my name is Duncan Green. I'm a professor in practice at the LSE and in the International Development Department, which means I don't actually work here. I uh, work for Oxfam, so I'm very excited to get to introduce my big boss uh, for this evening. Um, before I do that, a couple of announcements. Um, keep your phones on so that you can tweet, but put them on silent so you don't annoy everybody. Um, And the hashtag for tonight is LSE Africa, for those amongst the Twitterati in the room. Um, There are toilets, you'll be pleased to hear, and they're on the ground floor. More than that, I don't know. Um, This uh, is being live-streamed, which means when we come to the Q&A section, you will have to wait for a microphone. There are lots of roving mics. If you uh, just speak without a microphone... The people who are listening uh, on the web won't be able to hear you, so please. <laughs> well, I'm not going to test that. Um, okay, uh, and the final plug is there are some of the, if, if at the end of the night you are so moved that you want to do a master's in African development, you're in luck. There are some leaflets for that, so that's the only commercial I'm going to do tonight. Okay, uh, let's get on to the main event. So, um, Winnie Bianima has the most extraordinary CV. Um, She's one of those bridging intellectuals who has a foot, more than a foot, lots of feet on the ground, working with grassroots organizations uh, in her native Uganda and across uh, uh, the world. She's also an international public servant, high-ranking in in various UN bodies, um, an expert on women's rights, and executive director of Oxfam International. Phenomenal that there's only one of her, actually. Um, At the UN, she was director of gender and development in the UN Development Programme. Um, and uh, she was co-chair of the 2015 Davos World Economic Forum, and she's just come back from a busy couple of weeks at the uh, UN Sustainable Development Goals Summit in New York, and then the World Bank Annual Meetings in Peru. So um, you're in the UK. Okay, okay, fine. Uh, Just just checking. Um, Okay, so she's going to speak for about 45 minutes, and then we'll take bunches of questions, uh, and, and take it from there. We'll aim to end by 8 o'clock. Winnie
1: Thank you for that introduction, Duncan. Good evening, friends. Good you don't greet? <laughs> Good evening. Good evening. Well, I'm delighted and I'm truly honored to be invited to speak at your university, the London School of Economics. When I thought about how I wanted to start this lecture, I told myself, Winnie, don't be an Afro-pessimist. Yes, I head up Oxfam and I talk about poverty every day. It's a depressing subject, but above all, I'm an African girl who is proud of her roots, proud of her family, proud of her country, and proud of her continent. I'm proud of what Africa has achieved because in the villages and towns and cities across Africa where Oxfam works is to be found Africa's greatest strength, the resilience of its people. Let us consider the history of the African continent. Four centuries of slave trade, one century of colonialism, so five centuries of domination, external domination really. And now we are looking back on just 60 years of independence. You know, there are continents where such a history led to indigenous people being almost completely wiped out. In contrast, Africa's working age population is expected to double in the next 25 years to 1 billion people, surpassing both China and India. 1 billion productive, resourceful, increasingly educated, young women and men. So we are here, Africa. We are here to stay. We've survived and we must thrive. Of course, we also know that the move to independence has been a very rocky road. The colonial legacy must take part of the blame here, of course, and the decisions and power structures left by retreating colonial powers but there were also the weaknesses of post-independence leaders and the willingness of elites to capture these new states. Allow me to start this personal reflection with my own story. My father, whom you see there, was a school teacher. My mother too. My father was not motivated by power but inspired by the promise of a new nation Inspired by the independence movement across Africa, inspired by the resilience of Ugandan people themselves, he was persuaded to represent his area in the Ugandan parliament. He was proud to be part of shaping a new democratic nation. We felt very much part of an independence movement across the continent. But Uganda's independence was a false start. Before long, all all but five members of my father's opposition party had been bribed or bullied into joining the party of government. Finally, his party was banned, leaving Uganda as a one-party dictatorship, which then fell into military rule, all this within 10 years of independence. Now, for myself, being a schoolgirl under Idi Amin, I understood what this false independence, this false freedom, felt like. Idi Amin would wake up in the morning and declare a new law on the radio, supposedly inspired by his dreams. He would burn lipstick, he would burn wigs, he would burn miniskirts, he would burn all kinds of things. The nuns who taught us girls in schools built strong walls around the school. But every day, my friends and I would walk the streets with the real risk of being spotted by government soldiers. Wearing banned items was certainly enough for arrest or violence, but a more constant threat to us was of being simply taken away by a soldier to be his wife, and there would be no case to answer. And yet we took this risk, we got our education. Ordinary people helped each other to be resilient. Similarly, at my home, my father continued to take risks. Our house became a center of resistance for people whose rights were being denied. Women whose whose land was being grabbed, young men thrown out of jobs because they didn't support the regime, and fathers whose daughters were snatched away from them. In the end, Ugandans organized, we fought, we won against oppression and dictatorship. And whilst Uganda is not what we would celebrate as a true democracy today, it is stable and it is beginning to deliver for its people. So let's move to the present day and examine the assertion that Africa is rising. A few Months ago, at the beginning of this year, somewhere in the middle, I was at the World Economic Forum on Africa. In the pristine conference center of Cape Town, and amongst the luxury hotels and the fancy restaurants in the city, I heard one dominant narrative, summed up by President Jacob Zuma, who said at the meeting that the African continent is open for business. There is, of course, a lot of truth to this claim. Over the past decade, Africa has been among the world's fastest-growing continents. Its average growth rate was more than 5%. Last year, the IMF estimated that Ethiopia was the world's fastest-growing economy. Foreign direct investment to sub-Saharan Africa expanded more than 30-fold in the last 20 years. Much of this growth and investment can be attributed to global demand for natural resources and commodity prices. But it would be a mistake to see that as a whole picture. Tourism, telecoms, banking and transport are all attractive investments and driving growth. As well as the increasing use of offshoring in global value chains. Furthermore, we've seen real progress in the sphere of human development and that makes me hopeful. In sub-Saharan Africa, 41% fewer mothers die in childbirth than they did two decades ago. And since 2000, the region has doubled the rate at which child mortality is declining. This is one of the most sensitive indicators of poverty in a society. So while across the continent, we are seeing more policy and political stability, Even if there's still huge variation, we should look at Botswana, Senegal, Kenya, Benin, Ghana, and Zambia as strong examples. And yet, and yet, almost one out of every two Africans still lives in extreme poverty today. This is more than four times greater than the world average. And whilst the proportion of those living in poverty is declining, the absolute number is projected to increase by over 50 million by 2030. It's the region with the highest prevalence of people going hungry. And, and in contrast to global trends, the total number of people in hunger in Africa is still increasing. That's frightening. And of course, women are hit hardest. In sub-Saharan Africa, they earn, on average, 30% less than men. So how do we marry these two pictures? Africa is growing, Africa is rising. You know, we even have 16 billionaires living in sub-Saharan Africa. And yesterday, I was with one of them, Tony Elomero. But so are the number of African people living in poverty so the question to ask is Africa is rising but rising for whom rising for whom this brings me to explore the theme of inequality that Oxfam has spoken so much about in recent years six African countries South Africa, Namibia, Botswana, Zambia Central African Republic and Lesotho are among the top 10 most unequal countries in the world. And South Africa is the most unequal country in the whole world. And the World Bank said this year that in Africa just 10 people, 10 people have the same wealth as the poorest half of the African population. This is over half a billion people. 10 people you can count on your fingers owning as much as half of the whole population. This is deeply undesirable and disturbing. Firstly, high levels of inequality across Africa are slowing poverty reduction efforts, and that's why we care about this as Oxfam. It's unjust, but it also traps people in poverty. We now have an increasing understanding that economic inequality severs the link between growth and poverty reduction. A study from the World Bank has found that in countries with very low income inequality, such as some countries in Eastern Europe, every 1% of growth reduced poverty by 4%. In countries with high inequality, such as Angola and Namibia, growth had essentially no impact on poverty. Zambia. Zambia grew by an average of 3% every year between 2004 and 2010, pushing Zambia into the ranks of middle-income countries. Despite this growth, the number of people living below the $1.25 poverty line grew from 65% to 74%. So numbers of poor were rising as growth was increasing. Distribution of income can have an effect on a wider set of poverty outcomes, too. Take the example of Bangladesh and and Nigeria. I like citing this. Both are low-income countries, although recently Nigeria declared itself middle income. (laughs) Bangladesh is the poorer of the two, but it is far more equal than Nigeria. Child mortality rates in Nigeria are nearly three times higher than those in Bangladesh, the poorer country. It is the children who bear the brunt of this inequality. The fact is that if African countries continue in their current growth trajectory with no change in levels of income inequality, then the continent's poverty rate won't fall below 3%. That's the World Bank's definition of ending poverty, This will not happen until 2075. Secondly, economic inequality compounds gender inequality. And this matters very much. When I think about the position of women in Africa, I think of this woman Jane and her story. Jane is 75 years old. She's my mother's goddaughter. She attended every one of my mother's births, including my own, six of us. At 16, she was married, not for love, not through her own choice, and she was not even a first wife. Her husband married her for her labor. He needed more help on his land. Here, she lived a hard life. She was a successful farmer but all her products went to her husband. She owned nothing. Jane lost three of her children before the age of five through illnesses and diseases that she would have been able to combat if she had not been so poor. Her husband died in 2005. Before this, I had helped Jane to build a small house on her husband's land. Now she wants to do the most natural thing in the world. She wants to leave it to one of her sons. So last Christmas, she came to me to tell me of her wish. Now, under Ugandan law, she should be able to do this. She has a right to the land of her husband and the house she built on it. She has a right to it under the law. However, as a second wife, Tradition dictates that she cannot, that the land belongs to the son of the first wife. When she came to me asking for money to buy the land back from her stepson, I challenged her. I said, why pay for what is already yours? The law says it's yours. It's your husband's land. He left it for you. You can give it to your own son. She said no. And her reason tells you a lot about the legacy of discrimination against women. She would not stand up for what was rightfully hers. Her life is regulated by tradition and custom. She dares not step out of this as the consequences of conflict with the family, the stigma, are too much to bear. At best, she would be seen as a woman who does not respect custom, at worst, there could be violence, and that's what she feared. It's still the case today that many women in Africa are like Jane. They still fight to earn a living for themselves and their families against rules which hold them back. They are not allowed to own land or to inherit. The wage gap between men and women is higher in more economically unequal societies, and women shoulder the vast majority of unpaid Care work. Women in sub Saharan Africa spend 40 billion hours per year collecting water. I should say, women and girls. This is equivalent to a year's worth of labor by the entire workforce in France. Think about it. The entire workforce in France, all the hours they do, producing and earning, is spent by women and girls just fetching water in Africa. Seventy percent of Africa's homegrown food is produced by women, and women spend three to five hours' time longer than men on domestic work, such as cooking, cleaning, caring for children and elderly. This creates a vicious cycle, as women living in poverty are more likely to lack the legal entitlements, the time and the political power that they need to increase their income. I think I'm telling you what you probably know. The problems with inequality are increasingly understood by policymakers, and that's hopeful. We are witnessing a change in thinking in recent years as inequality is no longer seen as the unfortunate price to pay for economic growth. At the World Economic Forum in Davos, the quest for inclusive, inclusive growth was a strong theme. Similarly, where I've just come from, at the World Bank and the IMF and your meetings. And finding growth that delivers for all was the challenge left by Dr. Donald Kaberuka as he stepped down from his role as president of the African Development Bank this year. The IMF, has evidence this year how increasing the income share of the poor and the middle class actually increases growth while a rising income share of the top 20% results in lower growth. This is the evidence from the IMF. So solutions are beginning to be discussed to tackle inequality in Africa and and there are solutions that make sense. Much inequality is found in resource-rich countries where the linkages between extractives and the rest of the economy are weak. Encouraging an industrial base and manufacturing to add value to our natural resources would be essential for job creation. Likewise, investing in agriculture would reach 75% of Africa's poor who live in rural areas especially if this can be linked to demand from increasing urban urban populations. There is an undoubted need for infrastructure and better regional integration to improve trade within African countries, and this has been a big issue raised by African policymakers to the aid community. Technology is increasingly seen as an opportunity for African governments, for African poverty reduction, It's commonly talked about, leapfrogging. Leapfrogging is a term that policymakers use when they they are talking about the hope of innovation by the private sector. And by the way, innovation is all the time being talked of as synonym as being private sector driven when in fact we know so much innovation is driven by the public sector, including universities such as yours. But anyway, innovation telecommunications, decentralized energy will make up for poor infrastructure and lack of an industrial base. So all these are solutions and action is being taken to address the position of women and girls. Africa has what is considered by many to be the best and most progressive women's rights policy instrument in the protocol on the rights of African women. It ought to come alive. There is merit to all these solutions and they should be pursued. But I'm concerned that these discussions are taking place without a strong analysis of the global power dynamics which have led to this increasing inequality or a willingness to tackle those who benefit from the status quo. It's about power. The policy solutions are easy to come up with can sit in the universities and think of them and write them out, but you have to tackle power. To explore these power dynamics, let me take you back to that picture of foreign direct investment flowing into Africa. And I want to temper that picture slightly because for all this money flowing into Africa, far more flows out to the rest of the world. A recent report by the High-Level Panel on Illicit Financial Flaws, led by former South African President Thabo Mbeki, found that in 2010 alone, multinational companies were responsible for around $40 billion leaving the continent as a result of trade mispricing alone. Trade mispricing is just one of the many ways that companies can avoid paying their taxes quite legally. Add to this the issue of generous tax breaks, incentives, tax holidays negotiated by multinational companies. On a panel I chaired in in Oxford in January, Dr. Kaberuka, the former president of of the African Development Bank, was reflecting on his time as finance minister of Rwanda and what it felt like to be on the receiving end of tax negotiations with multinationals. He recounted how, this is, I'm quoting from him, the multinationals come to you and say, we want to invest in your country, but we need a five-year tax holiday and this long list of requirements, tax breaks and so on. And by the way, We only have six hours, and then our plane is taking us to your neighbor, who will probably agree to all of our demands. That's the way it goes. So there is this harmful tax competition. Precisely due to the secrecy surrounding companies' tax arrangements, it is impossible to get a full picture of the amount of money lost to Africa through tax dodging and harmful tax competition. But we can say with confidence, that much of Africa's progress is only going back to benefit rich countries and their companies, is mainly going back to rich countries and their companies. This is only made possible because of the relative power position of multinational companies. This includes their power in relation to African governments desperate to attract investment and their power in relation to the bodies setting setting global tax rules. The OECD, soon after the financial crisis, the global financial crisis, the G20 sat down and decided that it was time to plug all the loopholes that enable multinationals to get away without paying their fair share of taxes. And they asked the OECD to lead a process of global tax reform. The current global tax system has existed for 90 years or so and it was designed at a time when there was no globalization, technological change, as has happened now, hadn't happened. National bo- Companies worked within national borders. Things have changed. It's not fit for purpose and that's why companies can cheat. So there was a need for global tax reform to make it fit for purpose in a world that has changed. But The OECD process is called base erosion and profit shifting that has gone on for the last two years and has made some a plan on how to fix this global tax system that is leaking has involved only one third of the countries. Two thirds of the countries have been missing in this discussion, particularly developing countries, whose issues remain unaddressed, such as this question of tax reform, of harmful tax competition. So, unsurprisingly, now the OECD action plan is out, it doesn't do nearly enough to meet the needs of developing countries. That's why Oxfam and other international NGOs are putting so much of our campaigning resource behind tax and calling for a truly inclusive process to write global tax rules. If multinationals can run rings around our tax systems to avoid paying tax, where they really earn their money, if countries continue to compete to offer the lowest tax rates and most beneficial tax deals to attract investment, then we'll continue in a spiral to the bottom, a tax war. That means we cannot tackle poverty and inequality. I've just come back, as Duncan told you, from the Sustainable Development Goals Summit at the UN where the role of the private sector in delivering these new goals was much discussed. I stood by looking rather suspiciously at this very warm embrace between governments and the private sector. And they talk about they are going to work in partnerships to get it right for poor people. Companies are proud of creating employment in developing countries. But for that pride in job creation to be justified, those jobs must be of good quality. They must pay well. Unfortunately, we see that more and more economic value is going to executives and shareholders and less and less to workers. Bosses of British supermarkets such as Tesco enjoyed a quadrupling in pay from one million pounds to over 4.2 million pounds between 1999 and 2010 in one year. While Garment workers from poor countries across the world have seen the real value of their wages go down. Oxfam conducted our own study in two value chains involving multinational and local companies. And we have found that all too often work is not a route out of poverty but is trapping people into poverty. In Malawi, where the tea industry has been going for over 100 years, the wages of tea pickers were only about 35% of the estimated local living wage, not nearly enough for food, clothing, housing, and any other spending. In Kenya, we looked at the cut flowers and green beans sectors, which provide significant export value. Most jobs were poor quality and gave very low wages, especially for women. For every pound spent on cut flowers in the UK, think about the flowers you buy for your girlfriend, your boyfriend. The growers back in Kenya received just seven pence for every one pound. For a pound's worth of green beans, it's even lower, just five pence, five pence out of a hundred pence. If just five pence were added to a four pound bouquet of flowers, which I know you can afford from your local ASDA, wages for workers could be doubled, could be doubled with just five pence more added to a four pound bouquet. The wages for workers could be doubled. It's clear to me, therefore, that any talk of inclusive growth in Africa from its political leaders must be accompanied by a willingness to tackle power and vested interest and the global rules that keep people poor. My own journey from that school girl to now has taken me through many roles, from from graduating as an aeronautical engineer in this country to politics, to diplomacy. For 10 years, I was a member of the Ugandan parliament, to working at the African Union, the United Nations Development Program. I'm proud for all the achievements I have made and grateful for the opportunities. But it is with Oxfam that I feel I can do the most to challenge the elite capture of power that lies at the root of so much poverty and inequality. I love this job because I can talk truth to power. It does get me in trouble here and there, but not so much. The solution to this imbalance of power, this abuse of power, lies with organized citizens. I'm proud that Oxfam supports African civil society to assert itself and claim its rightful space. As an international NGO, we have the opportunity to link African local civil society movements and build solidarity across countries. I was with them at the UN summit with African leaders of organizations, women's organizations, farmers' organizations. I do believe that it's through solidarity that the excluded and unheard can create a groundswell of power. In a world in which power and poverty is changing, the inequality challenge is significant enough that Oxfam itself is radically changing to get the best outcome for the poor and vulnerable. We are moving on from what we see as an old model that says all the thinking and fundraising and campaigning is led from rich countries like the UK in the north and implemented in the south. We are building ox farms in southern countries that can raise their own funds, run their own programs, make their own alliances, lobby their own governments and businesses. That's the future. And bringing this back to Africa, that's why after being situated in Oxford since our inception more than 75 years ago, we are now relocating our international headquarters to Nairobi in the coming years. So let me end by looking ahead to the future for Africa. I'll paint you a picture. Africa, the youngest region in the world, and of course, the oldest one as well. (laughs) By 2030, we will see this demographic dividend of young people entering the workforce. By then, the reforms to the global tax system will have allowed African countries to have halved their tax gap, raising over 112 billion extra dollars per year. Spurred by active civil society groups and the direction set by the sustainable development goals. This money is directed at health, education, and social protection. It is spent on investing in agriculture and in infrastructure to link up and light up the African continent. This has enabled young people to create products and services and enterprising solutions which have helped to address poverty across the whole region. In cities from Nairobi to Accra, these young urban workers are fed by Africa's booming agricultural sector where small farmers have been able to respond to growing domestic demand and (coughs) resist the encroachment of global agribusiness. Nairobi has grown to become the Silicon Valley of Africa as other cities emerge as centers for technological innovation. Africa is not just a continent of consumers but a contributor of innovation and global knowledge. Climate finance is flowing into Africa too, protecting the poorest as they seek to adapt to the inevitability of global warming. But also supporting African businesses to lead in renewable power generation. African culture is thriving, and there is a true African renaissance. Twenty heads of state are women, including from previously conflict-affected states, who have followed through on commitments to women at the heart of peace-building. African universities are hotbeds of innovation and political activism, yeah, yeah. As young students are inspired by the declining power of the old elites, like my own Yoweri Museveni, to debate and create their continent's future. In every country, the gap between the rich and poor is decreasing, leading to stable growth and a decline in conflict in the region. And Africa at peace with itself peace with the world and with people living in dignity. Thank you very much.
0: Judging from Twitter, we have a lot of people on Twitter, and they really enjoyed that, so, um, and judging from the applause, too. So we're going to take questions. Uh, we'll take two or three at a time. Um, completely arbitrary choice of who speaks, but we're going to start on the top, because they always get forgotten, and then we'll come down to the bottom bit. Have we got people up there with roby mics? Right. Please raise your hand. Um, who have we got? Who have we got? OK, I'm trying desperately not to pick men. Um, there will be time for the men it's fine Uh, Um, just say your name and ask (laughs) a question Thanks.
2: Um, Francesca, that was a really amazing talk Um, I just wondered what you thought about um, organisations such as the IMF and the World Bank Um, and they're often quite criticised for their debt repayment packages um, particularly to African countries and I'm just wondering what your experience of that has been and with a they are too complex for countries to get out of or even enter into. Okay.
0: Um, all right then. <laughs> the one up there. Thanks. Uh, about 10 years ago, NGOs like Oxfam came in for a lot of criticism. Uh, do you think that criticism was justified then? And what, in your view, has changed? Thanks. What kind of criticism? Yeah, could you be a little bit more specific? We get criticised for lots of things.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, uh, for the emphasis in Oxfam on the, its grassroots activities, uh, ignored the the ways that they that organisations became co-opted into the larger imperialistic structures. Okay. I and one down here at the front. Uh, hello. Uh, thank you very much for your speech. I see that you're wearing a lovely attire which is custom made pre- probably in Africa Some. <coughs> and the fear at the moment is that with globalization and development is that the African culture is lost in attempts to develop in a westernized <laughs> way. Do you fear that in a couple of years' time, Africans would be aspiring to be more Western as opposed to staying faithful to their culture, which is different, and difference is what makes the world what it is. Okay. So. Thanks a lot. Let's take those three, and then we'll come downstairs. Mm. Is that okay?
1: Okay. Uh, you raised very important questions. So the, the question about the IMF and World Bank. see, in recent years, as I just said in my speech, the IMF particularly, but also the World Bank, have changed their thinking. they're now telling us and bringing us the evidence that actually there is no, that growth and inequality are not trade-offs, that in fact high levels of inequality slow down are, are uh, erode long-term sustainable growth. They tell us more and more that you need to ha- to have growth that is lifting most out of poverty, and they believe this. They say this. They write it. But we challenge them now to take it to their policy advice. It's not there yet. Their advice to governments and their lending to governments is not not informed by this new thinking. And that's why I go to their meetings, that's why I'm coming from Lima, to challenge them to take the new thinking that's really going away from the orthodox economics, trickle-down economics that you must, must first grow and then redistribute, to now are thinking that you actually need to pursue a growth model that is inclusive, that's lifting most out of poverty. I'll give you another example of where there are inconsistencies between what the bank and the IMF are saying and what they do. The the World Bank lends through its lending um, to the private sector called the IFC, International Financial The IFC will lend to companies and companies will go and take on huge infrastructure projects and so on. Oxfam follows these projects and finds that these large projects displace people, grab land from people. When people resist, they are even killed. They, 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 They damage the environment. The safeguards that they have that the bank has developed safeguards, environmental and social safeguards, to protect people from negative impacts of their lending don't work for these intermediaries. And the bank's position is that when we lend to governments, we will use our safeguards. But when we lend to the private sector, it's their business. to to have their own safeguards. So we have this ongoing conversation with them about, no, if you lend to companies, you must make sure that those companies respect human rights, do not displace people, and so on. It's, It's a discussion. We continue fighting with them about that, that their model of lending is completely opposite to what they preach. A last example I can give you is from Lesotho, The new model that the bank is pushing for investing in the health sector is public-private partnerships. These partnerships are supposed to bring in money that governments don't have. Well, in Oxfam, we believe that certain services like health and education should not be sold, that a private sector model would not reach and deliver to poor people, the most remote, the most needy, will not get. But this is now a debate we have. So the World Bank lent money to the government of Lesotho to build a new hospital in the capital. The old hospital was dilapidated and was failing to really deliver health services. So the the model that was... The model that was agreed was that Lesotho would find a private company that would build a hospital, charge the government. The government would pay it over an 18-year period. And meanwhile, the the company would make back its money, first by giving a free service to a number of inpatients and outpatients for the government, but then charge others and make the money back, as well as getting paid by the government. That was the deal. Four years into the project, we found, Oxfam found, that the hospital was now absorbing 52% of the entire health budget of the country. Listen to that. Maseru is a small city, and the country is a mountainous country. People live in remote parts don't come to Maseru that easily. The country was hit hard by HIV AIDS. It's a sick population. But now half the resources of the the health are now concentrated in one hospital in Maseru, benefiting mainly urban people who are better off and who can reach the service. Besides, the company is being paid handsomely and charging other people who can afford. So it's a good investment for the company, but a bad investment for the country. We've challenged the bank. We've said this is not a model which works. We've shown the evidence, and we are now getting some signs that the bank is not pushing the model hard on other African countries. This is just to agree with you that the international financial institutions are far They are now singing the song. They are joining us in saying inequality is bad, and not just bad because it's unjust and against human rights, but that it's also bad for growth. But they've not translated it into their practice, either the lending or the policy advice. And we keep fighting with them over that. Join us. The the criticism of INGOs. Yes, INGOs were criticized. But I have to say that the change that we are going through as Oxfam is not in response to criticism. It is our own internal analysis of how to change the world, what we need to do to be able to have our highest impact on poverty and injustice. And when we looked at the world, we see that the world has changed since Oxfam was founded. Poverty has shifted. It's not in the poorest, low-income countries. The majority of poor people are in middle-income countries. India alone has double the number of poor people than the entire sub-Saharan Africa. And it's a rich country. Nigeria, as I've told you, declared itself middle-income. But one out of every two Nigerians lives in poverty. So how can we have an impact there. We found that in these rich countries we cannot work in the old way of taking projects like digging wells, like building classrooms, building clinics. No. These countries can afford these things. They just don't prioritize them. There's political capture. The resources of the country are not going towards the objectives of eradicating poverty. So we found that the way for us to make a difference is to shift away from digging wells and building classrooms which we knew how to do and move towards influencing, supporting movements to influence those governments to invest in the lives of the poor. So increasingly we are positioning ourselves in these countries with local civil society, supporting them to challenge and to shift investment of the resources of the countries. So yes, we've, we've shifted from service delivery, we've shifted our focus to influencing and we are relocating ourselves in the South in order to be legitimate, relevant, and part of, of the struggles of Southern people. Criticism was there that we were part of, of aid machines, Benefiting from aid budgets and being intermediaries of aid, yes. But for us as Oxfam, this wasn't really even a big, a big issue for us. Because look at Oxfam here in this country. Oxfam is a people's organization. It's not a government organization. Most of the resources of Oxfam come from ordinary people like yourselves or probably your parents bus drivers, nurses, teachers who contribute a small check every month towards Oxfam for Oxfam to have its voice, independent voice. From the shops where people take their second-hand stuff and we sell it and make a 100% profit on it. This is how most of Oxfam's money is raised, a little bit from the aid budgets of government but not enough to make us uh, be agents of of, of governments. We speak an independent voice. We challenge the governments where we work from and where we are registered. So it wasn't, it was a criticism, particularly of organizations that were purely uh, delivery mechanisms for aid. But Oxfam was not really that. The last question about African culture. I worry, I, I worry about globalization and its impact on on uh, diversity and cultural diversity. I worry mostly about our languages, because language is really a powerful tool for oppression or for liberation. If we lose our languages, I think we will lose our soul and we will lose our independence. So I worry about thought, thought leadership. I worry when African universities die, when they are not able to produce new ideas, to challenge and bring thinking coming from our continent. That worries me. But um, it's really about our countries, the southern countries, claiming their space by putting themselves on their own feet. That's why this tax issue has taken a lot of my time looking for ways for these countries to fund their own development to, and to end the political capture, to have those resources put into people's lives so that people have the capability, the health and the education to make them productive people, creative people. I care so much about that, the economic independence of our countries and the ability to channel resources into the lives of most people so that they can be creative. Creativity is what will achieve that balance because globalization, the, the media is there. It's just a tool. Everybody can put their stuff there online. But if you have no stuff to put there, then you're in trouble. So you don't have stuff to put there if you do not invest in your own people and their creativity. So. That is what I think. I worry about uh, culture domination. Yes, I do. But I, I go back to, to the, this issue of economic independence.
0: Okay. Let's take some more questions. Oh, okay. Sorry, guys, at the top. We're now down at the bottom. You missed a chance. Um, right. You lady there. Uh,
1: thank you for the lecture. My name is Carol. I'm from Kenya. Um, I have a question and I'd probably want your answer from two perspectives. Um, We have seen that um, of late there's been a lot of... um, I'm over here. Of late there's been a lot of um, NGOs coming up with girl-child related issues, the girl-child rights, and it seems like it's a concern all over Africa that we have forgotten the boy-child. So I would want to know, uh, number one, from your perspective as an African girl, if there's anything that we can do to change that, you know, and um, as a lady who has worked in different organizations, um, what your professional perspective would be on that? Okay. Um, yeah.
0: uh, to the... No, no, you go,
1: you go. It's fine. Yes. Uh, I have two questions. The f- <laughs> <laughs> very short questions, actually. The first one is, don't you think that the resilience, the high degree of resilience of African people that you
2: said is, it's uh, their strength. Is it the main weakness that we have in Africa, like what have made African people less responsive to the challenges and to their elites and political elites? The second question is, what are the main limitations, constraints or challenges in the way to the picture that you have drawn for Africa?
1: I didn't get the second question.
2: What are the limitations and
1: constraints in the way to the picture that you have drawn uh, for Africa in in, in the end of your speech.
0: Okay, and two people behind you. so I will
1: come to you in a minute. Good luck.
2: Hi, um, my name is Fiko and I'm from Namibia. So I'm really glad that you spoke about inequality because it really is a huge problem in my country. And I was just wondering, are there any key sectors you think that countries with high inequality rates should be focusing on in in order to um, bridge the income gap? Hi. Um, my name is Latifa. I'm from Nigeria. Um, I have uh, just a quick question. Um, you spoke a lot about uh, how we on, about um, including um, big players on a global scale. But how do you think African countries can include people with vested interests and um, um, kind of like the big players in, on the continent in order to uh, tackle poverty? I don't know if that makes sense. Do
0: you mean include big countries, big individuals? No, I mean you
2: spoke on a global. You you spoke on a global scale about including. Um, sorry, I just lost my track of. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean you spoke on a global scale about including um, people with vested interests in. Um, uh, tackling the uh, poverty situation in Africa. But how do you think Africa can take responsibility within the continent itself, like each country taking responsibility for poverty on the continent? I don't know if that makes sense. We're going to have a little stop there or <laughs> we'll show just... Okay.
0: Okay. Stop there if you keep them short, then we've got less time for
1: Okay.
2: You. I'll keep them
1: short. Caro, the girl child, the boy child. Well, it is Africa which pushed for A critical area of the girl child in the Beijing platform for action 20 years ago when this agreement on gender equality and women's rights was made in China, the the agreement was initially having, I think, 10 10 or 11 critical areas, and we, the Africans, are the ones who insisted on a special area, a special focus on the girl child. I, I believe we're right about that. It brought attention to the discrimination that women face right from birth, because at that until that time there was a lot of focus on women's rights, and what was obvious was the discrimination women faced, the oppression at the household level, and all that, and and the denial of opportunity, but not uh, from childhood. So, but then when you mention about um, the boy child, you have to look at the social indicators and the economic indicators. If you look at the African continent, I think it is in one area where you can see a reverse gap, and it's in just very few countries. You will see a reverse gap in education in the extractive, as a result of the extractive economy of South Africa around uh, around South Africa. In Lesotho, you'll find more girls, less fewer girls, sorry, sorry, more girls in school than boys, particularly at the higher primary school level and at the secondary level. This gap was a result of, is a result of the extractive industry in South Africa. Boys leaving home at an early age to go to work in the mines. I think you'll find it also in some parts of Mozambique, some parts, but not at the national aggregate level. So this needs to be addressed. Of course it needs to be addressed because that means that boys are being denied opportunity. But when you look at the whole continent, on most other indicators, whether you look at health, whether you look at education, you'll see that it is the girl that is left behind. It is the girl who has been denied opportunities. The girl, It's the son preference that runs through from childhood that leaves a girl behind. And then that also goes on to adulthood, when women now cannot inherit what they have earned, like I showed you, Jane, Jane and so on. So I'm afraid it is the evidence that tells us, it is the data that tells us where to put the focus. and custom and tradition and laws that have not addressed and rebalanced this culture and these traditions, still disfavor women and girls. So, yeah, a little need for uh, balancing it out for boys, but on the whole, boys are ahead of girls. That's what I would say. On inequality, on resilience, I think you are Wrong to say that our our resilience is our weakness. Come on. The resilience of African people can be seen in the history as I have said. That a, a continent that faced such aggression, foreign aggression for 500 years, and has been independent for less than 100 years. But here we are with countries that we manage or mismanage ourselves, that are growing, you know? We, we, we are survivors by any standard. We are survivors. So the resilience is there and is not our weakness. If there are problems that we have failed to address, we need to look at that. But we can't say that our strength is therefore why we have failed. No, I don't agree. I think we need to look more deeply at why 60 years of independence have not resulted in growth, eradication of poverty, and and the progress, the social and economic progress that some other countries have made. There's a real issue there, but I will not put it to our resilience. You talked about, you said this picture I painted at the end, What are the big challenges? One of the challenges I mentioned lies in the global rules. The global rules of tax, of trade, are steeped very heavily against African countries and their rise. So these need to be tackled. And, And I think that having a global movement that is fighting for trade rules, tax rules that are fair, it's very important, and Africa should pay, play a lead role there, but we also have internal challenges i mean the con- The continent is not integrated it's not a market that can be useful for uh, for, for growth, for people to, for young people to find jobs, to create, to build enterprises the, co- the continent needs to come together more to build an infrastructure that connects it. These are challenges that I touched on a little bit throughout my speech, and many of these fall squarely on the responsibility of our political leaders. But I talked about political capture, that until they stop working for a narrow interests of a few, the few companies that come and even bribe them sometimes or um, twist them, until their focus is on the majority of the people and eradicating, lifting everyone from poverty, this political capture will leave us where we are. Inequality, Namibia. You know, a big cause of the rising inequality in African countries is to do with the nature of the economy. The extractive, the extractive economy is really very, very easily, um, or it really drives inequality fast. In what ways? One, because first, by its very nature, it doesn't create jobs. This is just pulling some piece of rock from the ground and exporting it. it that doesn't create many jobs. So, but the money comes to the government. When the money comes to the government, then the governments tend to be unaccountable to the people because they get the proceeds directly. They are not taxing people, and people don't hold them accountable. So they run away with the wealth of the country. So extractives are really easily captured by elites, leaving citizens disempowered. That's what's happened in our countries. But also there are the external forces that I've mentioned where companies have such a force of their own and are able to negotiate to run away with the mineral without paying their fair share of taxes. That's also in the global tax rules that are not helpful to African countries. So the third part, which is related, is that when the proceeds come, the allocation of those resources is not done in a democratic and transparent way. So resources that could go to make people capable and productive through health, through education, through social protection, end up being misspent or spent on non-priorities like strong polices and armies and huge administrations and so on. So dem- lack of democratic decision-making is another factor that drives inequality in our country. So why, what would we do? As I say, it's organizing. It's organizing against political capture. It's organizing to have transparency of resources and how they are, contracts and how they are made, resources, how they are collected and how they are allocated. There are no shortcuts. It's about people taking charge and controlling their destiny by holding their leaders accountable. That is the same answer to your question, that really African countries, within our countries, citizens need to rise. And we are more educated. We are a young population. You are the majority, the younger people in our countries. Some of our countries have 60% of the population below the age of 15 or so, something like that. So it's about young people rising and using the tools of technology to assert themselves and demand that governments work on the interests of the majority, not for a narrow elite. Keep going? Yeah.
0: Okay, fantastic. Um, okay, sorry, the ground floor definitely has won this one. They've got lots of hands up. So we'll um, start over there and go around the back. Yeah. Yep, you choose.
3: Thank you. Um, my question is about the picture of Jane that you showed and some comment about the, uh, the, the boy child. Having grown up personally in Uganda, I, I saw that there was uh, a move to increase girls' education by subsidizing their Uh, intake on an expense that we actually remained with the syllabus that promoted the stereotype of um, what a girl can do, rather than changing the attitudes. So I I want you to comment about what um, maybe, for example, Oxfam is trying to do to change the stereotype um, celibacies of education that put a girl can do this and a girl cannot do that. Because I I know that the reason girls weren't performing very well was the amount of tasks they were doing and boys were literally relaxing and able to do well in schools. Okay,
0: thanks. With the woman just in front of him.
3: I was wondering how you assess the current state of white and black people living together or are they really mixing up or are they... Ac- just living next to each other.
0: Any country in particular? Do Do you mean in the? In no,
3: actually, just Africa as as okay. a whole.
0: Fine. Um, okay, let's take a couple here, and then we're gonna. This. I'm sorry, everybody. We'll have to do this on Twitter or something. Yeah, these
1: these two here.
2: It'll be both
1: During the Financing for Development conference, uh, most of the NGOs were looking for. Uh, the outcome outcome document um, uh, addressing an international tax reform body. But this didn't happen. So with with lack of political will, how else can we address this issue of tax injustice in Africa?
0: That wasn't a planted question, okay? Um,
1: Um, I just wanted to ask that you ended your speech by saying that we're a hotbed of new ideas and we're attracting new investors. Um, the focus in
3: 2015 has really been on Kenya, particularly following the GES summit, uh, where Obama gifted um, um, new investors and entrepreneurs with one
1: one U.S. billion or something like that. So can you comment on that and can you say that this is an
3: incentive for young people to actually come up with new ideas to grow their businesses.
0: Okay, there's a woman here who's going to die if she doesn't ask the question. So. <laughs> <laughs> awesome.
2: Thank you for recognizing that fact. <laughs> I don't want to die in time yet. Yes, I'm from Museveni land. Yes, <laughs> just like you.
1: And uh, he's about to declare a Uganda middle-income country in 2017. I'm sure you know that. That's two years, two years away. Do you think that's possible considering what's going on? And then what do you think about electing poor people into power, because it's happening so much in Uganda that we have a lot of corruption, and every time we elect someone into power, you see they're out to get, you know, whatever they can suck out of the economy. We are really electing poor people. And you talked about Botswana. These are countries which had rich people get into power. I know the rich can also be corrupt and stuff. But at least, you see, when they got there, they had their money and they looked out for others. But our politicians are, are kind of a joke. You see every time... Uh, no, seriously. Every time you see... <laughs> okay.
0: I think we get, yeah. the, we get, the, we get the idea, yeah. I think. So, um, I'm just looking, You think about time and people's evenings and Winnie's evenings. So I think I'm really sorry, but we're going to have to cut it there um, to give her a chance to answer. Okay. Um, it's fantastic that there's so much interest. Brilliant, but carry on. Winnie.
1: Thank you. Yeah, there was that question about girls and boys, the stereotypes and whether we are breaking them. And there's also a mention of the burden of unpaid care work that falls on girls and its impact on girls' education. I think that's what I heard. All your points are right, that we need to break these stereotypes. And by the way, it's not just in Africa, it's also even here. Even here, I think that um, you can find in, in many universities, in the north that you still don't have parity of numbers in in science and engineering and mathematics courses. So there's still something there about girls shying away from it. But it's not as serious as it is back home in Africa that um, we need to work on, on education reform. But more importantly, making education really relevant for both boys and girls, I think there's a whole question of relevance that is a critical factor, but the stereotype issue as well. On the question of unpaid care work, that is actually quite serious for girls, that in many, many, especially rural areas, that girls miss out on school or even drop out completely because they must be part of the labor of the family and, and and that is that is holding back equality in, in, in education. So yes, things have to happen in those areas and affirmative action is important here. There has to be incentives for families to end this son preference thing. So if it means paying, giving a subsidy for a girl to stay in school then so be it. If it means allowing them to enter certain courses where normally they would, at a lower grade, even that I support, allowing them entry, special entry into certain courses in order to equalize, so be it. White and black people, my friend, here in Africa, (laughs) we don't know a lot about race. When I came here, I was a refugee, I was 17, I wasn't aware that I was black. I did, I, I was not aware of race. Our societies are very homogeneous. Huh? The, the minorities are there, but they are not, it's, most people will grow, in a rural, grow up in a rural area without ever seeing somebody who is different from them. That's one factor. But the other factor is that uh, racial supremacy is an ideology that was created by those who needed to dominate others. We've never used race to dominate anyone in Africa because we we were dominated using a racial ideology, but we didn't construct a racial ideology to dominate other groups. So you will find that in many parts of Africa, people will generally treat somebody who is different as interesting, curious, person to look after and take care of, And if they are white, they will think they are smart and very clever and everything they say is right. (laughs) You'll probably get a better deal there. So, no, I'm I'm not trying to be facetious. There were some really hard situations that uh, where you could see some uh, tensions between white and black people in Africa. Yeah, they, they do happen. But by and large, racism is not uh, an ideology that is advanced by African people. They have not uh, been part of needed to construct such an ideology. So I would say that most times uh, where you find a racial tension, it may be a country like South Africa with that history of racial domination. But in many other countries, It is not a a, a big issue. Tax injustice, I, I, I spend a lot of, a big part of my lecture talking about that because it's a really important issue to deal with now and the rich countries are dealing with it. As I mentioned, there's a process being led by the OECD that has just concluded and that's leading to very important reforms that are going to help rich countries actually get more of their taxes out of multinationals. They are, get multinationals here to pay their fair share. For example, they are going to increase transparency between, they are requiring companies to report what they earn country by country, project by project, they are exchanging information. So now, I just read in the Financial Times today that they've just passed the files of all American expatriates here in Europe who have been hiding from paying their taxes back home. Now the American taxman is coming for them. <laughs> so it's working for them. But they, what is not happening is that the big issues that are hurting, denying poor countries the resources they need for their development, aren't being tackled. And that's why we are fighting on this as Oxfam. And indeed, we need to build coalitions in the countries, in African countries, in Asian countries, raise people's awareness of the issues and mobilize them to fight on the issues. I was at a meeting in Addis Ababa in July, Financing for Development Conference. I was really shocked and disappointed, but not surprised to find that African delegates attending this important conference on how to finance development, were hardly aware of the very many ways that companies are avoiding paying taxes in their countries. There's not sufficient awareness because the, the rules are so complicated and, and uh, many negotiators are not aware. So we need to work on this and build a momentum amongst civil society, and government people on the question of tax injustice. Kenya, you know, you mentioned Kenya and, and uh, I talked about it as the Silicon Valley because there's a lot of innovation going on in that country. Young people are seizing these tools of of digital tools and creating new products, new services, extending uh, the the. Technology to applying technology to solve development problems and to earn money, and this is exciting. But don't get excited by Obama's one billion. It's nothing. It's a drop in the ocean. <laughs> what we have is the resourcefulness of young people. You know that young people, without even a college degree—not not you clever people at LSE. But young people from secondary school just get that mobile phone, and if, the, if, it's got, if it's a smartphone, they can do something with it and create something that can solve a problem. That is really where the exciting things are happening. And we must find resources to support that. And, and I see smart people, hedge funds, and people with resources are coming in to put money behind these creative minds. So there's real opportunity, especially if we can remove the barriers, country barriers, and enable people who have a good idea to sell it at a wide scale. I'm very optimistic about, about what digital technology and new technologies can do to transform lives. So yes, I agree with you. The elections and elites, I think you, you touch on something important, but then you make the wrong conclusion. The important point you touch on is, again, the political capture. How elites, in fact, how concentration of wealth and concentration of power. When a few people run away with the wealth of the country, they also hijack the politics, the political process. And elections begin to mean nothing because they just power their illicit funds into elections and bribe voters and whatever, and keep getting themselves into political power. So I couldn't, I would disagree with you that rich people will be better leaders for us than poor people I totally disagree with that. I think our leaders will be as good as we are in holding them accountable, whether they are rich or poor. And leadership will be good if it is as representative as possible, if it reflects the diversity in the society. So a system which enables people of every ethnicity, men and women, young and old, to be part of the decision-making is a rich system, a good system for leadership. But for that to happen, we must decouple money from politics. We must decouple those two. So there's a real need for people to unite and demand for that and really put pressure for change that will decouple money from the politics and then also to have inclusivity to make sure that you level the ground and enable people of all shades to be part of the decision making so don't have any hope in rich people in fact <laughs> they only take care of themselves thank you so much
0: two words donald trump okay? um, <laughs> So in in LSE terms, demand has massively exceeded supply in terms of Winnie's time. So um, if it's okay with you, I'm going to ask her to come back at some point and keep going. Uh, Do you think that's a good idea? Yeah, I'll try and bend her arm over dinner. All right. So. Okay been a remarkable evening fantastic presentation fantastic questions but we do have to come to an end thank you very much for coming and another round of applause for winnie i think